thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And um, if you're a longtime listener, I just want to say, hey, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I'm so stoked that you're with us. And if you're new, um, well, we are a real dialogue podcast, which is pretty different from the traditional interview. We have real conversations that are not edited that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. And we hope to inspire you to follow your different in life, business, and in marketing. Well, we are on an awesome run of episodes with some legendary Silicon Valley VCs. Uh, we had Randy Comazar on episode 106 uh, from Kleiner Perkins. I highly recommend you check that out. We have an episode coming up soon with Heidi Rosen, one of the uh, absolute living legends. And today on this episode, entrepreneur, executive, VC, and best-selling author of one of my favorite books of the last couple of years, Traversing the Traction Gap, none other than my buddy, Bruce Cleveland. He's one of the smartest guys I know, and uh, particularly one of the smartest guys I know in the enterprise technology uh, startup world. Bruce and his firm, Wildcat Ventures, have been rated independently as producing one of the top 1% returns in enterprise tech. We get into uh, the state of the industry, why enterprise technology is the place to be if you want to create enduring value. We talk about digital transformation and a whole lot more. If you're a tech executive, startup founder, investor, or frankly, somebody with a curious mind, you're going to love this conversation and gain many insights that you'll be able to put to work immediately. Go to Lockhead.com for the show notes and key takeaways from this episode. And uh, hey, while you're there, why not check out our newsletter or subscribe to our newsletter, The Difference. We're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com different. I also want to invite you to join me. Did you hear that noise? That's my friend Beatrice. Uh, she's uh, one of our dinosaurs. Uh, if you're <laughs> if you're new, you might not know. Uh, my wife and I have eight hens, and uh, Beatrice was pretty needy, so she's sitting on my lap right now. <laughs> but I digress. Uh, soon I'll be speaking at a wonderful event, uh, Hypergrowth. It's one of the world's fastest growing events for modern business leaders. It's the second time I'm going to be there. It's uh, this November eighteenth, twenty nineteen, in beautiful downtown San Francisco, and. I am stoked because I'm going to be doing a talk, a live podcast, if you will, with the legendary Carrie Palin, who's the chief marketing officer of Splunk. And uh, we'd love to see you there. Go to hypergrowth.com to, uh, to get yourself set up. And at checkout, you'll get tickets for 99 bucks if you enter the code legendary at hypergrowth.com. Enter the promo code LEGENDARY and you'll get tickets for 99 bucks. and hope to see you in San Francisco, November 18th. Now, hey-ho, let's go. And if you look at the valuations of companies, of these public SaaS companies um, or co public technology companies selling into the enterprise using a subscription model, what you discover is their valuations are reflective of the enduring value um, that they provide, right? And so it's just, it's, an, it, it's amazing when you begin to look at it. And there's a, an even more subtle factor here, which is that the amount of capital invested into these private enterprise companies that go on to be successful, that is, they eventually go on to become public or acquired for a high multiple. Um, if you take a look at the amount of capital required to build that enterprise company versus the amount of capital required to build a consumer company, it is shockingly different. That is, consumer requires so much capital, not upfront to build the product, but to build the market share. Tremendous amount of capital versus some of these enterprise companies, which require much less. A good example, um, Uber, I don't know what its current market valuation is, but you know, at one point it was 100 billion, let's call it 50 Here, billion. I'll look at it right now while you're talking. So that company required about $10 billion to get to its current market cap. Um, so they're currently at... Uh, 62 billion 
And I think in their most recent earnings, they had a giant loss. It was some number that made me stop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Uber stock craters. Hold on. This is, uh, yeah, $5.2 billion loss in the quarter. Wow. That sounds wow. Like not a business. Well, I mean, I get the jam the foot through the floor scale. We got massive category potential um, and we're going into eats and we're going into this. I I get they're trying to prosecute a gigantic agenda and that takes a lot of capital. But holy shit. I mean, Bruce, I don't know. You're the you're the smart guy. We haven't seen a lot of companies in tech uh, B2B or B2C. I don't think we are seeing in B2B. at that level, I mean, people were freaked at Amazon levels, but these, this is, this is, this is incredible. No, we've reached a whole new plateau, I believe. And, and so, so if you look at a company, I'm looking at your chart here, which I love, by the way, on the uh, B2B returns. Um, so you are deeply involved with Marketo. Yeah. The enterprise value of the company in the end was four point, is that an eight? 4.8 billion. 4.8 billion. And do you off the top of your head remember how much capital they required to produce 4.8 billion in value? Only through private markets, so about 106 million. So that excludes what they raised in the in the public offering or maybe any potential downstream uh, financing events. Okay, so maybe is there an example that's a little cleaner because they did go through the public and then private okay. and all that? Good one, uh, Viva. Okay, so what is Viva? It's a very focused enterprise uh, application software company targeting the pharmaceutical industry. It's actually started by a bunch of people that used to work with me at Siebel Systems, guys like Craig Ramsey, Mark Amanante, and uh, a number of others. Um, they're they're basically C- sort of a CRM system for uh, for pharma, and it's built on top of the Salesforce platform. So they didn't have to build all that platform infrastructure. They just had to build the app on top of it. So, but just for one vertical, um, I made, this is one of my anti-portfolio. I passed on it because it was so intricately involved with, with, with Salesforce. I was worried about their ability to control the platform and the pricing. And sometimes it pays not to know as much as you do know. <laughs> um, good guys. But I got, I got an opportunity to look at it and I went, you know, I kind of like to see where Benioff and Salesforce goes with this before I make this investment. You'll probably have another couple of investments. I'm fine with the, you know, having to kind of pay up for that. I'll just wait. So Emergence did that particular investment, that round. And uh, unfortunately for me, they never raised another dollar. So how much total capital did Viva raise? Um, and by the way, check, let's check out what Viva's stock is currently. What's the market cap of Viva? V-E-E-V-A. Hold on. Today. Keep telling the story and I'll look yeah, it up. So, so um, unfortunately for, for an investor like myself, they never needed to raise any capital. Well, and fortunately for a, a great investment firm like Emergence, uh, on that $7 million total raised, um, they are now somewhere, I think, north of $15 billion, uh, in terms of market cap. Uh, no, this can't be the right way. What's, what's the name? How do you spell it? What's the symbol? It's V-E-E-V is the symbol. V-E-E-V. V. Oh, okay. Like, uh, that can't be right. Uh, so, and Viva Systems, there it is. Uh, 24 billion. 24 billion. Yeah. Off, of, off of what raised? 7 million. Total? Total. Yeah, but you know, that's not a real return though, is it there, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure the guys, guys are in the hall of, they're in the front half, maybe the front 10% of the enterprise tech uh, ROI on investment hall of fame. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, let's take a look at Workday. Uh, Workday, I think is around in the 40 billion plus range. They raised, you know, around a couple hundred million total. It, uh, it yeah, I mean, uh, let me see that. Let's see. Uh, Workday stock. I think that's, I think they raised around 200. I don't know that for sure, but that's my memory. This says uh, 43.5 billion. There you go. And Not then bad. the other one, um, Zoom, they're at 13 and a half. So down a little bit. I don't remember the, f- 
the number we had Eric Yuan on earlier. I'm hoping to have him back. Yeah. Um, they, sh- they, they did not raise a hundred million. I don't think. I don't think so either. I think it was less than a hundred million. If it was more than a hundred, it wouldn't have been one fifty, and it sure as f wouldn't have been two hundred pre IPO. No way. But and if you go through all the public SaaS companies, the, those are the ones that have made it. Um, those companies, th- this is a consistent theme. The multiple on invested capital, the MOIC, the multiple on invested capital, and we're talking about the private capital invested, yep. phenomenally better in enterprise. The issue is, is that they take longer to build up, right? They, they take longer to kind of begin to get, you don't get those big markups in the first two years, you know, as, as, as the companies begin to scale and, and show minimum viable traction, um, once they do, though, the... Uh, Unlike <laughs> minimum viable product, which I don't really love. I love minimum viable traction. Sorry, I hate to interrupt you and tell you how great you are, but I'm going <laughs> to... So, um, a deba- MVP, a debatable term. The, um, uh, the way that I look at it is that that's when all the venture community begins to throw... T- it, it, it is the moment in time that you're not selling others to invest in you, they're selling you to invest, that to take their dollars. That is, the, I think, the, the defining moment. That's why MBT is so important and such an important part around this, con- this traction gap framework uh, that, that we've developed. Um, but the important part here is that um, a lot of limited partners, a lot of the people who invest in venture firms, they want to see mark early markups in your funds. They want to see these great markups because then they can go to their investment committee and show, look at these great firms that we're in. Um, what they don't tell them is that that may be true initially, but it's going to take gazillions of dollars to get that company finally you know, out the door. Um, they are extraordinarily capital intensive and the multiple on invested capital is high. And a lot of these things are faddish, you know, they may work initially. I, I don't know, you know, um, if they can move into other areas, then they'll be okay. Um, but a lot of times these things can come and go as opposed to these enterprise companies. I mean, last night, I mean, I started with Oracle back in the early eighties. I think they're still around. <laughs> I think they're still, <laughs> um, you know, SAP, uh, Workday. Now, I mean, these are companies that are enduring franchises. Cisco, that- I mean, incredible company. And, and more recently, I mean, look at the incredible success of a Palo Alto Networks. Yeah. Um, I, I'm biased because I have a connection to them, but you know, my friends at Splunk, uh, unbelievable. And you look at what some of these companies are doing and, and you just go, well, the future that we hear about all the time that we're all betting on, and I do want to talk to you about digital transformation and AI as part of sort of your enterprise investing insights. Um, but the future that we're betting on only happens if these massive new enterprise companies, and not, not just new, I mean, look, Microsoft is, 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 is a massive enterprise company, um, continue to deliver on, you know, that enduring value you're talking about. No, the, the, and, I, and I think this is um, the, the fundamental problem is that if you talk to college students, you know, whether they're undergrads or grads thinking about entrepreneurship, taking entrepreneurship programs, I lectured at, at, I lectured at Stanford and Columbia, et cetera. Nine out of 10 of the companies that they're considering building these, these, young, um, these young entrepreneurs are B2C. And the reason they are is quite obvious because that's all they know. They haven't really worked in industry. And I don't think they realize that the, the, the failure rates associated with B2C are in the 90 percentile. If it's CPG, it's like 98% failure rates. I mean, it's, it's huge. And by the way, it's not limited to just startups. Large because companies- everybody has a new idea for, for a, a new hot sauce. Or or whatever the fuck, right? Like it's like, oh, I gotta, I, I have an innovative idea for donuts. And look, there there are successes. You know, I, I love to talk about nothing bunt cake. You know, the two hundred and fifty franchise chain of bunt cake bakeries. I think it's an amazing niche down. And I those things are always fun. And I think there's always, you know, the, the there's sort of a Disney esque uh, vibe on some of those success stories. But uh, you know, all that said. You know, the interesting thing for me as a young man, I, I stumbled into this, but the, what sort of helped my stumble was I was 
And I always, I always chalked it up to the fact that I wasn't a technical guy. I'm not so sure that's really the reason anymore, but whatever the reason I was fascinated with the application of technology and what it made possible. What, what were we now able to do inside our business or, you know, if you think about as IOT has emerged, I, I started to work with a couple of IOT companies long before the term. It's when I wrap my brain around, oh, the internet's going to be everywhere and on everything. There's going to be this physical, at one point, I think it might've been called a Terranet. I can't remember, but there was lots of terms floating around at the time. Anyway, whether it was when I was a young man learning about PCs and client server or today in this example with IOT, I, my brain lights up around, hmm, oh, if, what it could, does that mean you could do this? Or do, do that mean, does that mean, is it going to change this? Or what is that, is that going to nullify or, or make obsolete that? Or, you know, I, I have this, my brain goes to this crazy, like, and then what's the future going to be like as a result of this? And so the application of technology to make some kind of difference in a business or hopefully some kind of business in the world, my brain went to there. And so, that's why first and foremost, I was attracted to enterprise. And then the second thing, as I sort of casted myself, positioned myself as a marketing guy, as you well know, everybody in marketing wants to work at Procter and Gamble. Mm-hmm. But when you're the marketing guy who can take deeply technical products and figure out how to make them relevant to the world and translate from geek to business or human in a powerful way, that's a cool thing to do. No, absolutely. I, I think I think you're you're right on. Um, in fact, it's it's not just a cool thing. It's it's hard, um, and it's hard. And we know it's hard because we see most companies fail at it. It's part of. The, I mean, the foundational principle of the book that this trap, this traversing the traction gap book that I wrote, is really around market engineering. Um, it, you know, every one of our teams that we invest in, the companies I've worked with before, are all phenomenal product engineers. The missing link from most of these teams, except with rare exception, and that's why people like Larry Ellison, Mark Benioff, Steve Jobs, uh, Tom Siebel, these are why they're all billionaires. Because they're not just product engineers, they're market engineers. And they knew this from the get-go. They engineered um, a category. They presented themselves as the category king. They defined the category. They owned the category. And then they expanded the category through these market engineering techniques. And when I speak at Stanford or I speak at at, uh, Columbia or these great universities that I could never get into. (laughs) Um, I I hate to interrupt you, but isn't it funny that, uh, I mean, I don't put myself in your league, but I I get to speak at some of these places sometimes. There's no fucking way they'd ever have us there as students. (laughs) And here we are lecturing to the MBA super ding dong. What was that thing you got me involved with, with Babson, with their entrepreneurial super MBA yeah. Big young thing. That's a real, those, those are very serious people. Yeah. They're very clever, very smart, like perfect scores on their SATs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, Hey, um, you know, math was over for me in grade three. <laughs> like you understand. And I'm probably going to drink and I'm definitely going to swear. <laughs> and then <laughs> the other one that I love, you know, I do it. I don't know, maybe once a year ish, I get invited to something to speak at something at Stanford. <laughs> And I know this makes me a child, but every time I walk onto the campus, you know, park the car and start walking towards the whatever hall, ding dong hall you're going to go to, there's a big part of me that just goes, hey, neener nonner, all you motherfuckers who threw me out of that no-name place in Montreal, eh? Going to give a speech in uh, Stanford, eh? Neener nonner, go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I have to say that in in some... Um, wonderful twist of fate. I, I am uh, starting my master's degree at Johns Hopkins. Um, they they allowed me in, and I don't I I don't know why, <laughs> but but I have been allowed to to um, to attend, and I'm going to be a student, which I'm very excited. Wow! About. So you're going to get a master's at Johns Hopkins, and master's in what? Digital communications, not even business or science, computer science, which were my undergrad. Um, so digital communications. Yeah. So what, what do they mean by digital communications? A lot of writing, but writing more authentically and writing with re- research. It's one of the most powerful research. It was, I think it was the first research university in the U.S. 
uh, phenomenal. And what I want to add to my writing through my authentic, you know, the authenticity of, of my writing is to introduce uh, much more, less opinion and more fact and to really build up um, <clears throat> a discipline of how to communicate those facts. So that's what I'm looking to learn. And that's what they teach. I don't think they can help me. Uh, it's not, it's not for a job, you know, it's not, um, it's, it's not really, I don't, I, I don't need to go do this other than it's an, it's a internal drive to, um, continue to better myself. And I really enjoyed writing this book, but I think I can do better with the next one if I choose to do it. And I think I can do better in my blog posts and, and other things by getting better at this craft. I love that you're committed to that. You know, I, I'm, I'm committed to getting better at reading and writing as well. I don't have it in me to be as disciplined as you're now going to go be. But uh, isn't that, you know, it's so funny. This, this, this is, I know, a complete digression, but who gives a shit? Um, this distinction between learning and education. And if we could somehow make education about learning, wouldn't that be great? Because I, like you, I love learning. I, you know, since starting this podcast, I have read more freaking books than at any point in my life by some meaningful factor. And of course, the more you learn, the more hungry your brain gets. And I've become addicted. I don't know. Have you tried these? Are you into these? Masterclass.com? Oh, I haven't tried though. I know about them. Yeah. Oh my God. It's insanity. I have no affiliation with them. I don't know who funds them. So I, you know, it's, I'm not doing a commercial, uh, although I, I, I'd love them to sponsor the podcast. I think they'd be awesome. But you, for like 150 bucks a year, you can take classes from Steph Curry on basketball, Steve Martin on comedy. Uh, I love the Malcolm Gladwell one in the world that you and I write in. He's already taught me a few things that's helped me in my writing. There's one on Eric Zorkin uh, from Aaron Zorkin, how to make movies and awesome TV shit, you know. And I look at, I'm fascinated by all these things like you, communication, stories. How do you intertwine characters, fact, uh, storytelling, and what makes things resonate and stick. And so these are all fascinating ideas. And for 150 bucks, you can go on Masterclass. And so... But I guess my point is, regardless of how you do it, isn't this the greatest time in the world to be a curious person? Yeah, I, it's it, <clears throat> the accessibility. You know, I, I was doing, I had to do a few uh, pre-course um, work for, for the, the course that begins in September. And I, so here's, here's how it used to be done. I would go down to the library. I would go through the card file. I would ask the librarian because I didn't get the Dewey Decimal System where the hell this book was. I go to find it and it's been checked out. Oh, shit. So now I got to put my name on a list, wait till it gets checked back in. And I know I got a term paper that's due. Okay, that's great. Read all the books, read all the books, assemble all the stuff, you know, type, 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 type. <laughs> oh, not in a word process and a typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God forbid you fuck up one word, two thirds oh, of the way down the page. Exactly. Wide out, wide out. Okay. Yeah. And of course, people could see where you fucked up back then, right? That's right. That's right. So there was so, like a double penalty for fucking up on, on typing. That's right. So add the, and then you had to write down all the citations and you had to go, oh, I had to go create a bibliography. Let me tell you my new experience. New experience. Go to the online library. Look at new stuff. Oh, it's peer review. That's required. Take a look at that stuff. Okay, great. Assemble it all. Put it together. Write my introduction. Oh, do I have to actually create the bibliography or the citations? No, there's some application called RefWorks. Woo, voila, bibliography made. All my time is spent on the important stuff, which is thinking about what does this mean? What are the, what are the conclusions? What are my, what's my analysis? None of the time spent traveling to the freaking library, trying to get the books, trying to type the damn thing so it doesn't look like shit in the end, you know, and then creating the, the proper citations and reference. All that is cut out. It's a phenomenal experience. And unless you experienced how horrible it was, it's probably the same experience that people had to use an abacus, you know, or I don't yeah. Use a freaking slide rule. Um, a slide rule versus a calculator. Or so even today, listen, talk to, I, I hate to use this term because it, it sounds so terrible. Talk to young people. <laughs> they don't know what the fuck it was like before the internet. They're like, what do you mean there was a guy who came to the door and mom talked to him and she decided that your brain was worth investing in. So she bought the Encyclopedia Britannica or the World Book in my case, you know, and yeah. then 
once it, you would the subscription service was you would subscribe to the annual update, right? <laughs> You'd have a book and it would say, you know, 1942 on it, right? And it was like all the new shit that happened in the last year. That That's what we did. And then, and then we went to the library and, you know, then of course we had to walk 40 miles through the snow uphill back, both ways with no shoes on. I mean, it was tough back then. So let's, maybe we could link this conversation into this digital transformation thing, because I think it's all part of that. Um, here's how I like to describe it, Christopher. Um, if you think about it, every decade since kind of the 60s, we've gone through some kind of major technology transition. 60s, it was mainframe computing, right? We've got banks and our financial systems kind of online. Um, during that that uh, that era, but because of the cost, it was really limited to the upper apex of all you know all the apex predators of any particular industry, right? And they got the advantages of being able to implement that. Seventies, <clears throat> we saw the dawn of the of the mini computer, right? All suddenly, we've democratized some computing, right? At least made it more accessible. We've, Remember Digital Equipment Corporation, right? We and and some other proprietary companies. Wang, my, my, oh yeah, you just said it. That was my favorite company of that era. Uh huh. Wang. Wang. Yeah. Wang. So that was the name of the company. They had thousands of employees who said, "Hey, I work at Wang." <laughs> I still remember taking all the stuff I needed written up to the typing pool, which was a bunch of people who know how to use the Wang processor to get my stuff turned into some kind of document. My favorite was when PCs and PC networking started and word per, word perfect was the emer- you know the category king and word processing was a major driver of people wanting to come off these old mini systems. There was an expression you heard all the time and every time I heard it like a 7-year-old boy I laughed and the expression is yeah well we're working on coming down off our wang. <laughs> Remember that? We're coming down off the wang. <laughs> An interesting, uh, yeah, conversation could occur over that. I don't know. Whatever. So there's part of my brain that'll never cease being seven. Yeah. I think the, um, you know, that actually that's the next phase was personal computing, right? I mean, we, we saw the emergence of the IBM PC. We saw, we saw Apple, right, uh, come into it. And we, and, we, and we saw word processing, right? And you, you just said it, the driver for those weren't the kids that want to do a trash 80 program, you know, TRS 80 from Radio Shack. Um, <clears throat> they were business people who said, Oh wow. Spreadsheets. I mean, I, I don't have to like do them on paper. I can do it in, in this special, you know, um, PC, um, word processing, right? So really applications drove the acquisition of, uh, and the inclusion of those, um, uh, of the personal computer. Then we saw in the 90s, we moved to things like client-server computing, right? We had a different way to interface the PCs into the, um, into the, uh, into the back-end servers that contain a lot of the, docu- the documents that we wanted to access, along with the emergence of the internet, right? It, it was basically a I remember when you were looked down on if you did anything commercial on the internet. It was a, you know, you were violating protocol because you were trying to sell something or or communicate something that might be interpreted as selling, and you were violating the the protocol, whatever that was that was that was implemented. Um, and then and then into the two thousands, we saw the emergence of cloud and mobile, right? We cloud and which again brought forth a set of new applications, new accessibility, the democratization of really high-end application software to lots of companies. Seedable costs millions, you know, Salesforce costs tens of thousands. So it really opened up the, the universe of business software, which then also dramatically incru- increased productivity um, into businesses and then beginning consumers. And this is kind of where our story brings us, which is in the mid-2000s with mobile and, and cloud computing, we began to see the emergency of what we now call digital transformation. And it began in the consumer markets. It began with Facebook, Apple, um, <clears throat> Amazon, Netflix, and Google, commonly known as Fang. Um, we saw it emerge there, right? And these companies disemboweled the incumbents. I mean, think about Blockbuster, where, where it is right today. Nowhere. Think about, think about these business models that allow people, these companies to, um, 
dramatically change our lives, our consumer lives, have made these companies some of the most uh, important companies in the world. And half of the Fortune 500 that existed in the year 2000 are gone, right? I mean, they've either been assimilated or they were just went bankrupt. You know, they just don't exist. Kodak, you know, have you had a Kodak moment lately? I haven't. So <laughs> the, the, the net of this, Chris, is that... Um, I, I don't have them only when I'm on my horse and buggy. <laughs> <laughs> I have other kind of moments, but I don't have a Kodak moment. Yeah, I have all kinds of other moments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but so so what gets me really excited about where we are now is that we began to see the emergence of of this digital transfer these these business models and technologies began to have come into the enterprise space really sort of in the late two thousands but now in earnest uh, into all companies and and so what is this digital transformation well it's technology but it's also process too. It's, and this is what people are scared of, right? It's, oh my God, my job is going away. Um, that's how it's being manifested, right? There's a lot of fear around digital transformation. But digital transformation, make no mistake, it will overhaul everything from the metal, the chips that we use, all the way through the networking and the and the um, uh, the components that we use to interoperate. And we're seeing this happen. I mean, think about how fast it's happening. You know, 10 years ago, the, th- the idea of a, an autonomous car um, the idea that, you know, that we would allow ourselves to be transported or could transport. I mean, that was still science fiction. Um, it's still, I, maybe don't know. I don't know that I'm going to want to do that there, Bruce. <laughs> well, you know, um, a lot of, we would also say we probably wouldn't put all our, you know, um, uh, personal information out on the internet either. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, and I always think about like, you know, you think about what's going on in China, which is t- uh, terrifying that there's now a, you know, the digitization of the 1984 vision is, is, is so real. It's even realer than anything that could have been imagined. And, uh, and so you sort of think about it, you go, know, you know, if the government had said, Hey, this is what we want you to do. I want you to log on this website. Um, tell us who you are, how old you are, what you do for a living, where you went to school, um, everybody you're related to, everybody you know, and um, uh, post photos of your family and everything you're doing all the time and uh, uh, make sure that anybody else in the photo, we know who they are too. And um, just put that all in the public sphere and do it all day, every day. There would have been riots in the streets. But we've all done it like a bunch of mm, like a bunch of cows. We've all just been directed into this thing. And now we have uh, what was this term I heard recently? The surveillance economy. Mm, Interesting. Well, you know, yeah. And the the monetization comes through the digital oil, right? The data, not through necessarily paying for the app. People think that these things are for free. Um, but they're not for free, right? They're they're and just take a look at Facebook's profits. You know, we you can see for no, we sell them our data. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. They 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 provide us a service, and we provide them our data. Yeah. So the way the the reason I kind of did this big long wind up is because I think as massive as um, the the technology industry has been, and as massive as we thought Y two K was going to be. This will dwarf all of it. I think IDC says that by the year 2025, you know, roughly $2 trillion a year will be spent on this, on what we now are calling digital transformation, which is the ability for companies and consumers to actuate, to interact real time, 24 by seven, and that it'll be contextually relevant interactions that will make our lives dramatically easier, but in exchange for what, right? It could be in exchange for no jobs or, or the jobs are completely different. You know, we no longer, we don't need a milkman or a milk person to deliver our milk, right? We don't need And at some point we're not going to need an Uber or a Lyft driver to deliver a human. Um, Well, and I think it's getting even more interesting, which is uh, I think some people, myself included, who are in the more, let's call them, uh, creative type fields. I thought, oh, well, you know, all the task type fields, they're going to get fucked. But us smart creatives, we're going to be just fine. Well, guess what? Um, Chase Bank, after doing a multi-year pilot, has now hired this digital firm. I forget the name of the firm now. And this firm specializes in writing 
ad copy. Because after a multi-year study, the AI ad copy firm delivers way higher ROI than human writers. So now we're seeing marketing creative writers being replaced by AI. Nike just bought some consumer company, consumer analytics company that sounds spookily like Cambridge Analytics mm-hmm. around demographics and tastes. And I don't know, it's just when I read the article about what this thing was, it, it, there, there were a bunch of guys from MIT that created this thing. So, so what's my point? There's a lot of things that used to be strategic, creative, uh, analytical that were the domain of human beings. And now you could just press a button and have it make copy. Yeah. Well, I think you're raising a really valid point. Um, I, I think there is, um, you know, at some point you gotta, we're not gonna have machines necessarily sell to other machines, right? Although that, that, that may not be a true statement. You know, we, (laughs) Alexa could do your buying for you and decide what it is. So, um, sort of now, and like, if you think about in the stock market, right, you can put in an order with your broker digitally yourself, which I guess most people, how they would do it. And they'd say, well, you know, when, when GE hits X number sell or when GE hits X number buy and, you know, so you can set those things up and then look how far are we away from trading algorithms? Yeah. Well, I, I do think what we are setting ourselves up for is, which is why I think that the, um, why I, I believe that we can see a doubling in the stock market. It's going to come in the form of productivity. Um, the downside of it, productivity of the company. Um, but if you do some research, um, there are, uh, I think, some interesting things that are emerging that will uh, help to maybe put sort of a, uh, a break on some of this stuff, which still means that humans are going to be needed. Um, and the break is that, for example, millennials, if you look at the research, millennials and Gen Z, these are the sort of the people, Gen Z is just now kind of entering the workforce, millennials, of course, I think by 2025, again, uh, roughly 75% of the, of the, of the, U, of the workforce will be millennials. Hey, there are millennials who are now starting to have middle-age crises. <laughs> Yeah. Wrap your head around that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you'll see is that millennials value, um, at least this is what the research reports uh, show, that millennials value more than just, they're looking for more than just uh, companies that um, provide great products and services. They also want to have companies that uh, provide great um, contributions to the social, to social causes. And, you, and I think that in order for companies to do that, um, a, maybe a large part of the profits that would maybe necessarily, you know, just go directly into shareholder, whatever value are going to have to be reinvested into social good stuff. Um, because the, the data shows that people don't want to buy from companies that are just for pure profit motives. In fact, a recent U.S. Supreme Court case uh, with Hobby Lobby involved said that companies don't have to solely pursue uh, shareholder value in terms of for-profit. They can also invest in things that we would consider to be, at least in, in my career, you know, sort of outside the, the, the environment of for-profit. It's more in, hey, how are we helping the local community? <clears throat> how are we helping the environment? How are we helping, you know, our, uh, our, um, uh, our community. So the, the point being is that I think um, we're going to see some massive changes. That's what digital transformation is going to do. I think we have to overhaul our education market. To your point, it needs to be a learning. It needs to be a learning industry. Um, we can't afford to just have, you know, you can't go to school and get a degree in um, art history. Uh, sorry, everybody who has a degree in art history, but you can't get and, and then expect to have a light, you know, a great um, earning potential, um, or have industry want to hire you. We need to combine that kind of knowledge, et cetera, with also digital skills. We need to bring those two things and those digital skills need to be useful to industry because they can't amortize your training, uh, because they know that you're going to only be there a couple of years. It's not lifetime employment. You're there for two, three years, and then you're off to the next company. <clears throat> so they need to have you come in already able and capable 
of doing something that's useful to them. So digital skills such as, hey, do you know how to set up and operate um, Salesforce? Um, but not just that, do you understand the strategy of using Salesforce? Like what should be the territories and what should be the, what are the quotas and what should be the commission system? Salesforce is just a mechanical thing that you use as a tool to implement those strategies. We need to teach those strategies. Salesforce is a good job teaching you the tools. Marketo, HubSpot, uh, Zendesk, all these companies teach you how to use the actual tools, but how to apply them needs to be trained. And so we need a different type of learning program. One that takes, we can't ask our educational institutions to just become overhauled, you know, in a, in a couple of years, we need to partner them with um, new forms of learning and that we need to have the faculties and the administration embrace that and understand that their mission isn't just to provide you with, you know, the understanding of, of rhetoric and anthememes and, and syllogisms. We need, you need to understand, you know, syllogisms, logic. Yeah. You need, you need to understand, you do need to understand that you need to be an educated person but you also need to know how to apply that education. And I think I love your concept of learning. We need to learn. Yeah, I think that's learning. Yeah. Right. And, and like, I think I can educate. You talk about all these tools and I, yeah, I try to educate myself on all the marketing stuff. And um, now as a podcaster and an author, it's fun to dabble in the B2C side with my own shit. And of course, I still um, help a few companies here and there. So I'm fascinated by A, Learn, the education, what do I need to know about these technologies and tools? Some of them bigger, some of them smaller, but whatever it is. And then B, the learning is in, is in the application, I think. Well, that how do, the learning to me is about you get educated on what the shit is, but the learning happens when you try to use the shit, right? And you try to do stuff. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to do this digital marketing and I'm going to fail here and I'm going to do something there and I'm going to figure out, oh, this platform works better for me and that, you know, or, or, you know, in the case of AI, we're all playing in the marketing world today with bots of one sort or another. And, um, and so I think it's in that playing, that learning, that failing, that figuring new stuff out. Um, you know, that to me is, is the fascinating part. And so what are the big areas that you see inside this uh, giant banner of digital trans, uh, digital um, uh, transformation. Um, what do you see are sort of the big thematic areas that you and your partners are, are investing in? Yeah. So I said we're going to see a massive overhaul. Um, so the architectural, the the the, comp the computational and storage architectures that we put in place over the last you know twenty thirty years. Lamp stack, right? We have you know that's a common you know, um, terminology, basically relational databases with some kind of application that sits on top of it with, um, the, we extract the transactional data, we transform it into some other form factor. We load it into a business intelligence system, a, a data warehouse. We have data, um, scientists, you know, run their models against that. And then a week later or two weeks later, we send a report back to the marketing team or whoever and go, wow, look what's being sold. That shit's over. <laughs> okay. We can't use that model. We have to have, we have to overhaul our entire um, architectural systems to support real time which means a different type of database, a different type of, of computational architecture that allows us to take our actions and behaviors in real time. I'll give you a specific example. Um, I'm going to the store, you know, Safeway's nearby. That's one of the major retailers, you know, around here on the West Coast. Safeway's nearby. I'm going to go in and I'm going to pick up some milk. Well, to do that, I bring my handy dandy phone along with me, of course, because my wife may want to pick need to pick up something else in addition to milk. So I walk into the store. Guess what? I'm a member of the Safeway Rewards Program. Aha. I've opted in that says, hey, when I'm in Safeway, I'm open to receiving offers. Okay, so I walk down the aisles, boom, there's beacons installed. They are pinging. They go, oh, well, we know through the POS system, the point of sale system, what Bruce has bought or what specifically his wife has bought many times before, why don't we offer him a coupon for Dave's bread? Because you know what? 
we need him to buy more bread. And I go, you know, I, I love that Dave's bread, that Dave's killer bread. Oh, I love it too. So yeah, look at Dave's got some new cool stuff, you know, I don't know, pumpernickel with whatever seeds all attached to it. So I picked that up. That You cannot do that if you have to go through that old uh, architectural stack. You have to do it in a new stack. And what's happened right now is some of the leading, some of the leading companies like Safeway built Safeway Rewards. They had to handcraft that. A friend of mine actually was their CIO uh, for many years, uh, Barry Levinson. He worked with me at, at Oracle. And uh, he literally had 100 or 200 PhDs who were designed to basically manage and run after spending hundreds of millions of dollars uh, on building and developing from scratch, cobbling together all of this different technology to make the rewards program work. Well, that, was, that is analogous to having to take a compiler to write your own, to write a database. That's kind of the state of where we are. This next generation is you're not going to have to do that. Tom Siebel's new company, C3.ai, is a, is in fact, Tom's new, I would highly recommend Tom's new book called Digital Transformation. Um, I thought it was great. And it was awesome having him on the podcast. And I was, I expected the book to be good. Uh, I didn't expect to be, I didn't expect it to be that good. It's really good. And the other thing that's interesting, this is a side note. And you, you sort of touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, my conversation with Tom, like all legendary conversations, uh, uh, occurs on multiple levels. And of course, there's the surface level, what he's saying, which is fascinating and the things he's unveiling and his ideas. Okay, great. But underneath that, one of the things that's going on is you're experiencing a master category designer, market engineer, category creator, whatever term you want to apply to it, but he is doing what the legends do, which is he, he is the one with a point of view. He's the one who's framing the thinking. He's the one who's saying, this is what's important. He's the one who's saying, this is how you should value this shit. This is the strategic reason to do it now, not three years from now. He's the one driving, right? And then other people are going to play in his wake. Yeah, I don't think people realize just how good Tom Siebel is. You know, the um, I remember, um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Sand, Sand Hill, um, I forgot what it is, um, that, um, I think it was Vinny, Vinny uh, Mershon, it uh, has a blog, or it might have been MR, uh, Rangaswamy has a blog. Yeah, 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 uh, uh, sandhill.com. Yeah, so I remember something about was posted around Tom and, and somebody wrote, Tom Siebel's a washed up has been, you know, blah, blah. And I thought, you have no freaking idea who you are talking about. Um, so the, um, and the, you know, the, the, the last laugh is on them because this new company you know, Siebel may have had a big market. The CRM market is, is huge. We can take a look at Salesforce and see just how big that market is. Um, what Tom's pursuing with this whole digital transformation and with C3 as a platform, um, I think is massively larger than, than that particular market. And so, and Tom, as you said, is a master market engineer. Um, and you can see all the same stuff that, that he did at Siebel and how he created that whole CRM industry is being replicated here. It may not have been as fast. It may have taken a little longer to get to where we are now, but I think Tom's got the bit. And, you know, a lot of people think that just because somebody's in their 60s that they're, that they're tired and have no energy and are, <laughs> are, are not interested. Tom is a competitive man. And I'm telling you, he is going to own this freaking category. It's, it, no doubt in my mind. So well, interesting, um, the data supports that. Uh, I did an episode a while ago. I forget the specifics of the research, but the net of it is uh, entrepreneurs north of 40 are disproportionately responsible for creating uh, meaningful, long-term, enduring value. And so, look, is it really cool when a 22-year-old person does some, something amazing and creates a multi Absolutely. And should we put that on the cover of magazines? And For sure. But that's not the vast majority of who gets this done. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, the limited partners have all bought into the bullshit that you have. It's a, you know, to be a VC, you've got to be 25. To be an entrepreneur, you've got to be 25. And, you know, to in some extent, the venture community has been, has led this, you know. But if you look at the real facts of the returns from who's made the investments, 
um, to who's generated, you know, I think he would, and, and then who's generated those returns, the vast amount of returns that really come from the enterprise space. And if you're an enterprise entrepreneur, as you said, the average, the ages usually around 40 to 60, those are the best ones. Do you think they want somebody 25 years old who's never built a company or that went out, you know, went to a great school, Stanford MBA? Do you want that person on your board or do you want somebody who's actually built a billion dollar company, done, you know, been there, done that and can be a sounding board for, hey, here's the shit that happened to me. You might want to avoid it. That's what, you know, if you're forced to take it from that young, <laughs> young person, that's fine. That's a whole different deal. But I'm just saying, if you have, if you have a choice, you would probably prefer to, to, Put, at least I would. I want people. I would want Tom Siebel on my board, right? I would want. I would want people who are going to, you know, give me grief because I'm not thinking about the problems that are that lie directly in front of me and and take me to task. You know, I'm making sure I got those things done. It's not about being my friend. It's about making sure we make this thing work. So the point of all this is. Um, I'm a huge believer in this digital transformation. Uh, you could see it coming. You could see it steamrolling. You could see the evidence is clear. It is manifesting now um, in the enterprise. The, um, your alternative, uh, other than a, a C3 uh, or a splice machine, another company that, that I'm an investor in, so, you know, disclosure, I'm an investor both in C3 and splice machine. Um, the, these are companies that are providing that are providing these these toolkits to enable you to modernize your application or to write these new AI ML apps. Um, the 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 issue, the, your other alternative is find a bunch of PhDs and 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 pull together like a hundred different discrete components that are open source, very inexpensive. But you have to understand how to put all that stuff together. And so that's why I was using that compiler analogy from back, you know, sort of in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, you could code your own database. Okay. But is that really where the value is going to come from? And I think, yeah. The other problem is that all these great companies like Google are, and, and Amazon are sucking up all the PhDs anyway. So you're not going to get them. You know, they're offering a million dollar, you know, signing bonus for, the, for these uh, young, bright minds. And, uh, and so what are you going to do uh, instead? I think what you're going to do is you're going to license the technology from these companies like C3, let them hire the PhDs and these other smart computer scientists and use their technology to, to build your modern, real-time, digitally transformed company. And at the same time, educate your, tr your, 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 your organization. So I'm, you know, another disclaimer. Um, I, a big hole I see is workforce, uh, you know, new workforce training in digital skills. And so I created a company called Greenfig that provides work experience, not just the, not the train on Salesforce or the train on Marketo. Again, you can get that from those companies. How do you apply that? So Greenfig is a, a company offering experiential uh, work um, in applied business science. So knowing how to apply uh, those technologies and in partnership with the universities. In fact, UC Santa Cruz is, uh, we just became a customer. So, uh, so, um, yeah, so you're a banana slug now. Yes, we are, you know, you know, go sort of ugliest, go. greatest t-shirt ever is the banana slug t-shirt, of course, made famous in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I guess the point is, is that I'm, I'm a huge, I think as exciting as it has been for me for the last, you know, sort of 30 years doing this stuff. Um, uh, I think the next, the next 10 to 20, I think, D, I think digital DX digital transformation is likely to take 10 to 20 years. And the reason is that it's so massive, which then gives an opportunity for investing in these disruptive technologies, right? To just overhaul them, um, overhaul business models, you know, overhaul uh, workforces, overhaul the the computational and server uh, technologies that are that are um, going to be needed to provide these these DX environments. Bruce, I think that's an amazing insight, and I think you're um, I think you're mostly right. I mean, look, no, nobody has a has a crystal ball, but um, it, it certainly feels like this is where we're moving. And uh, the other thing I was just as a side note blown away by Tom on is um, the investment he and his pe he makes in his people's education was a stunner. No, he, he's a very sharp guy. So if you remember, do you remember what Siebel used to look like inside? You go in every office. We every I, I was never invited over because we were <laughs> competitors at the time. So you weren't inviting me to the Monday staff meeting. 
<laughs> yeah. So, you know, suits and ties, everything was, you know, sort of um, same look and feel, uh, very, very buttoned down corporate. She go inside the offices of C3. It's, it's a little more relaxed. Uh, Tom is a clever man. He's adapted with the times. Yeah, I noticed he has, a, there's a photo of him out with his sort of hair is kind of w- more wild looking and he sort of looks like he's on a, on his ranch or something or so. Yeah, maybe he's a, like I never would have thought he would have a picture with his hair looks like it's blowing in the wind. <laughs> yep, he's adaptable. Yeah. Anything else you want to touch on, Bruce? No, it's been a great conversation, Christopher, as always. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, brother. I'm stoked you came back. Congratulations again on the uh, awesome success of Traction Gap. It's a great book. I highly recommend it to everybody. And uh, I look forward to having you back again soon. Super. There he is. There's a reason that Bruce Cleveland's a legend in Silicon Valley. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, why not share it with somebody in your life? I want you to know that we deeply appreciate you sharing this podcast. Now, um, are you building a high growth company? Because if you are, um, you need a platform that can take you from the garage, from the very early stages to the IPO and beyond. And that's where my friends at NetSuite from Oracle come in. You see, NetSuite is an entrepreneurial company themselves. They are the pioneer, the category queen or king in uh, ERP for the cloud. And they were, uh, they were, and frankly, still are, <laughs> a big part of the cloud computing revolution, establishing the world's first company dedicated to delivering uh, ERP applications over the internet. And today, NetSuite has a broad set of applications and capabilities around financials, of course, enterprise resource planning itself, uh, omni-channel commerce, uh, HR, and much more. There are more than 16,000 companies, high growth companies in more than 200 countries and territories that have built their business on NetSuite's platform. And uh, maybe it's time for you to check it out. NetSuite's a lot more cost effective than you might think. And as a listener to this podcast, they're offering you a free one hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out netsuite.com different to book your growth review. That's netsuite.com different. All right. We would like to thank my buddy Bruce Cleveland, his firm Wildcat Ventures, and why not check out his new fantastic book? I highly recommend it. It's called Traversing the Traction Gap. Traversing the Traction Gap, wherever you get legendary books. Speaking of legendary stuff that I like, the Mission Daily Podcast, a podcast for smart people who want to get smarter. Uh, Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Speaking of books, hey, my book, my first book, Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. OneLifeFullyLived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLived.org. GrowWire.com. It's what entrepreneurial people are uh, reading on the internet for stories of innovation. There's a great podcast, a great YouTube channel. Check out GrowWire.com. And if you're an entrepreneurial person and you want to scale yourself, why not look into the power of a virtual assistant with my good friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants. You can check them out at bottleneck.online. And my friends at Splunk want to help you bring data to everything. As you know, we are living in the data age and there's a massive explosion happening with data. And there's two kinds of companies in the future those that harness the digital revolution and those that are not around. So check out my friends at Splunk slash D2E. That's S-P-L-U-N-K slash D2E. All right, I need to remind you that this oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. What do you think, Beatrice? (laughs) I think she likes the Oddcast Network. Definitely. And we would love it uh, if you shared the shit out of it. All rights do remain perturbed. Now, clearly, this oddcast is uh, created in a studio that does contain nuts. Remember to keep, teach kids entrepreneurship and support your local entrepreneurs. Be a podcast legend. Remember, most people in America still are not enjoying podcasts. So tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. And you can even, if you're an iOS user, you can look at your phone and you can say, Hey, Siri, subscribe to Lockhead on Marketing. And she'll do that for you. Don't forget to buy John's Crazy Socks. Listen to Joan Jett. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Remember, there's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? 
Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of PG&E. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much. Uh, I really do appreciate you investing part of your life with me. And until we're together again, follow your different. Atta girl. <laughs> <laughs>